0: So we're continuing a new series that we started last week called Ancient Future, Yesterday's Truth for Tomorrow's Travels. And it's a look at the Apostles' Creed. And last week we looked at Article 1, I Believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of Heaven and Earth. And this week we're going to look at the bulk of it, actually. We're going to look at what's called Article 2 about what the Creed has to say about Jesus. So let's just jump right in. The Creed says this, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. That already says a lot. So we're talking about Jesus, obviously we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. But when we say Jesus Christ, that's saying something very specific about Jesus. Christ was not his last name, right? It wasn't like it was Joseph and Mary Christ, and then they had Jesus Christ, right? Christ was a title. It means anointed. It's a synonym for Messiah. It's a role that he played. It's not so much just simply an identity, but it's something that he was, because he was anointed. He was anointed by the Spirit. He was uh, the one chosen by God to be the deliverer of Israel, and as it turns out, not just Israel, but the deliverer of the world. Which goes into the next part, God's only Son. It is interesting, particularly in John's Gospel, that the term Son of God only occurs in the singular. It's always Son of God. And John will use the plural children of God to refer to the rest of us. However, Matthew, Mark, and Luke will use the plural sons of God. What's interesting about this is that, and there's a lot in here, more than what we could go into this morning, probably more than what we could go into in our lab session. But just to get started, Christians believe that um, the creator of the universe became a human being and lived a human life. God's only son that make Jesus completely unique no one else was like Jesus exactly and no one else uh, before or after Jesus is unique in that regard and, and that kind of fully divine and fully human we'll talk more about that in a second but then it ends with this uh, our Lord right I believe in Jesus Christ God's only son our Lord now that's a tough one you see Because this kind of takes Christianity out of the realm of just ideas and puts it into the realm of life and practice. Because anybody can have an idea about God, or anybody can have an idea about Jesus. But to even claim that Jesus is our Savior, which we do claim at times, is not the same thing to claim that Jesus is our Lord. A Savior is someone who comes and saves you from your disaster. A Lord, a Master, is someone that you follow and someone that you obey. Like Jesus will say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So it's not enough in historical Christianity just to claim that Jesus is our Savior. We also confess that Jesus is our Lord. So I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. What's the next part? Conceived by the Holy, Holy Spirit. Thanks. I know you knew it. Um, so he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because the creed picks back up on the Spirit again in Article 3 where it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. But, and we'll have a sermon on that next week. But just briefly, the fact that, that Jesus is conceived by the Spirit is the same way that all of creation actually begun. Uh, creation begins with the Spirit kind of brooding over... The chaos. It is the spirit that takes that which is unformed and formed. That that which is chaotic and it makes it into an organized reality. And so when Jesus is conceived of the spirit, it's kind of the beginning of this new creation. But we'll move on. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now listen, I know that you're kind of modern people. And that you live in a reality where you expect to see things that look a certain way. And they're not, there's not a lot of expectation necessarily for the supernatural. Um, and there's some things that might seem impossible to believe. And perhaps this is one of those for you. Like, can I really believe that part? Is that an essential? I mean, born of the Virgin Mary. Because virgins don't give birth Listen, before we overanalyze that one so much, there are plenty of impossible things, number one, that you guys believe in all the time. (laughs) You believe in all sorts of things that you you have no proof of. You just kind of trust that it's going to work, and that's how you move on. But I think more importantly is what the Creed is talking about when it talks about being born of the Virgin Mary is that Israel had gone through all of these hardships, Israel had struggled. Israel had been in the kind of the hardship of the world, and nevertheless, God had delivered. God, God had made a nation out of the descendants of one person. God delivered them from Egypt. I mean, how is that possible? They were slaves, and Egypt was the most powerful country on the world. Right? How, how, I mean, how do powerful countries these are vis powerless work out? You have to think about that. Is it hard for you? To imagine what it would be like if you were powerless? And you, you were faced up against a powerful country? Look, these stories get told and retold through human history. And to confess that we believe in the virgin birth is to say that one of these big events, right? That you have to understand, I believe, that the virgin birth in the context of the story of Israel that this is one of the big events that God has come and done and and reoriented our lives. That this is not just another point in history. This is an action of God to to reset things in a way to make them right. And that's how I understand uh, when we say I believe that he was born of a virgin Mary. And then it says, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now look, Everything up in the creed until this point seems pretty positive. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Everything's kind of hunky-dory, right? There's no real problem until we get to this point, and it says, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, biblical scholars, and I'm one of those, uh, and I would agree with this general critique, Uh, There is a common critique of the creed that it kind of skirts across the Gospels, that the actual stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are somewhat untold by the creed, that the creed is a great baptismal formula. Hey, here's the basics of what Christians believe. Here's what you need to believe in order to get baptized. But when you say, born of a Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, it seems like you've skipped over part of the story. Like, for example, his whole life in ministry... (laughs) Right, All of his teachings and all of his miracles, his healings, his exorcisms. Seems like that's a pretty big part of the story. I'm not sure where that falsetto came from. <laughs> but it does seem like that's a big part of the story. Like, how could we not talk about that? So a couple of things. Before we become too hard on the creed, the very word suffering carries a lot with it. It says a lot about who Jesus was and is. And there's a lot there, too, that could be unpacked. So the creed, again, was for the purpose of baptism. We wanted to say, here's the basics of what we believe, and I think it does capture that beautifully. And I think it does get at the aspect of Jesus' life, because Scripture, time and time again, will kind of summarize Jesus' life in the metaphor, or in the description, even, of suffering. Uh, we are going to follow up this series, Ancient Future, with the series on the good news, which kind of focuses on Jesus' life and ministry. So we, we have a nice supplement to follow. But for now, that suffering speaks to the humanity of Jesus. Again, the creeds were kind of formed in a time where there were folks who wanted to kind of dismiss the physical and only focus on the spiritual, To say that everything that's physical is bad or evil and everything that's spiritual is light and good and that the faith is just about thinking and enlightenment. And so to say that I believe that he suffered under Pontius Pilate is to say that I believe he was a real human being. That Jesus was fully human. That the humanity of Jesus was not in any way diminished by his divinity. That he fully experienced everything that it, that it means to be a human. As I've said before, when we try to imagine that sometimes it's difficult and we often, we often allow our belief in the divinity of Jesus to overcome our belief in the humanity of Jesus. And we think, well, how could Jesus be human like me? Because we look at ourselves and we, we realize our own fallenness. And again, here I would say that Jesus is the standard of humanity. Like, Jesus is what it means to be fully human. And it's only that when we are like Jesus, that we kind of fulfill our purpose and our goal, that we become fully human. When we're not like Jesus, sometimes maybe we're less than human. But that to be like Jesus is to be human, because Scripture and doctrine says that Jesus is fully human. But part of being human... It's suffering. It's limitations. It's not being able to be at multiple places at the same time. It's not always knowing what somebody else is thinking. It's to be hungry when you don't eat. It's to be thirsty when you don't drink. It's to be tired when you don't sleep. It's to be discouraged when things don't go your way. And Scripture speaks again and again about Jesus having all of those experiences. That Jesus kind of lived all of that. But what about this Pontius Pilate? I mean, really, how did he make the creed? Suffering under Pontius Pilate? Is that something that we all have to confess? When we say that I believe that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, again, it takes the story out of the abstract, and it places it into historical moment, right? There was a time. This is not just an idea. This really happened. There was this man and his name was Jesus and he was from Nazareth and he was this rabbi and prophet who we found out later was the Messiah, the anointed one, right? And then we found out he was more than just an anointed Messiah, but that he was the divine son of God. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But Pilate was this is part of that story, right? And it happened at a particular time. And again, it's kind of this anti-Gnostic uh, or this anti-over-intellectualized version of the faith that what we believe is part of a real story. And it's a story that can kind of, parts of it anyway, kind of get recreated or repeated. But parts of it were just these times, right? This Jesus, The Jesus part doesn't get recreated, right? It happened then, at that time with that person. Now, he was, a, he was a pretty horrible guy, Pilate. He did a lot of kind of bad things. But he's nevertheless part of this story. Karl Barth said he's like, the, he's like a dog that wandered into a nice room. And if, if uh, Phil Grimes were to um, paraphrase Karl Barth, it would be like any cat that existed anywhere. <laughs> That's Pontius Pilate. Suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead, and buried. Now, when we think of crucifixion, often I think because of our our modern understanding of what this must have been like, we think of crucifixion as a horrible thing primarily because of the amount of suffering. It's a really torturous way to die. Certainly that's true. But in the ancient world, to say that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried says something more than what I think we often uh, are aware of. It was a culture that was really kind of based in pride and shame. And this was the most shameful way to die. So the, the idea of kind of losing your, your namesake, losing your reputation, uh, being shamed in public, is, is spoken about in the Psalms, is spoken about in Isaiah. It, and it was a real part of the, of the culture of the time that it was a, a fate almost worse than death. Like it was better to die a death of valor than to be shamed. But to be shamed and killed is to kind of just be broken down and, and despised and rejected and just ostracized completely. So for the early Christians to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, and then to say, who was crucified, that's a big step. To identify with a crucified God, to identify with a crucified leader, would have been something that would have been extraordinarily challenging uh, for the church in the first few centuries. It would have been to kind of have to overcome all of those uh, social uh, norms and social expectations about what it's like uh, kind, of, kind of to be in the world. Now, his death and then his burial uh, leads also into the next statement, which is, he descended into hell. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Now, Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, descended into hell. Yes. So, The death of Jesus is something that relates very closely, really, to his humanity and his birth. Those who are born uh, die, right? That Jesus' identity with humanity is not just an identity with the good parts of us, right? Or with the easy parts of us, or with the nice parts about being human, like the beauty and love and music and sunsets, you know. It's also an identity with all that is hurt and broken with us. Jesus' death kind of finishes that story of his human life, right? Or it seems to be. It's not the, the end of the story. But it's what normally is the end of the story, right? So when Jesus dies, he experiences what death is like. So that Jesus identifies not just with the parts of us that, you know, we're, are selfish or the parts of us that, that do things we shouldn't do or the parts of us that don't do the things that we should do or the parts of us that we don't like. The worst experience, right, that we can have. Jesus identifies with that in his death. Like, he identifies with everything. So, have you been born? Well, so has Jesus. Have you grown? Yes, yeah, so has Jesus. Have you suffered? Yes. So has Jesus. Have you died? Well, none of us have died yet, but Jesus has. So Jesus is going to experience the full kind of human experience, and he does that in his death. And as we believe, what happens in a human death is that there is this kind of, in some some uh, translations say, descended into hell. Some translations say, descended into death. But there is this kind of experience, this kind of post-death experience that we believe that humans have, and, and Jesus has it too. The Orthodox Church has this really fascinating icon that kind of shows Jesus in kind of the depths of, of hell. And he's there, and he's kind of grabbing this old man and this old woman by the wrist, and it looks like he's about to kind of raise them up. Uh, it's... Um, Interpreters believe that this is Adam and Eve. That Jesus is identifying with all of our kind of sin, but sin can't withstand the presence of Jesus. That it's not, it's not death or hell or the grave that confines Jesus in his descent. It's Jesus who kind of overcomes by his very presence the, the restrictions of death, hell, and the grave. It's why Paul will write to the Corinthians Oh death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? This descent of Jesus into the depths is that which overcomes even the worst possible enemy, That what seemed to have been previously the ultimate enemy. Because all of that is overcome, and of course we celebrate this on Easter, that on the third day he rose again from the dead. And it's that kind of resurrection life that is practiced in, in the baptism. It's like we go down into the waters of of baptism identifying with the death of Christ and we come up out of the waters identifying with the resurrection of Christ. If we believe that our lives with God is not just something that we experience on earth in this kind of short temporal time of human existence but it is something that we will experience kind of everlasting to everlasting, right, in the new creation, in the new heaven and the new earth. My question for you then is when for you did your eternal life begin? It's already begun. And it it is celebrated. Your eternal life is not going to start later, like when you get resurrected. Your eternal life has already begun. Here you are. You're living. Right? And death is not the end. Right? It's just a little valley. And you're going to come out on the other side. So you've already entered into eternity. And the Christian practice that marks and celebrates that is your baptism. That when you come up out of the waters of baptism, you are identified with the one, the firstborn, right, of the dead. The firstborn of the dead. He too was dead. He was born up. He was resurrected. He's going to live forever. Uh, Jesus is the only one, by the way, who has been resurrected uh, thus far. There are other people who died and came back to life, but do you know what happened to them later? Yeah, they died again, right. So, so any, anybody in Scripture, anybody you've ever heard about, anybody who medically, who's been resuscitated, you know, with a defibrillator, they flatlined and now they've come back, they, they haven't been resurrected in kind of a technical theological way, Because they went into death and came back out towards this way, which they have to go back in again, right? Uh, Interesting conversation between Jesus and Peter. We think about about Lazarus. You know, is Lazarus like you, or is he like us? You know, he was dead, and he's come back to life. But Jesus was dead, and he came back to life. So is Lazarus like that guy, or is he like us? Well, apparently, he's like us, because Lazarus died again, yeah? Jesus did not just come back to life. Jesus goes into death, conquers it, and comes out on the other side. And that's where we're all headed. That's the Christian belief. And and we'll get there uh, more again. Descended into hell on the third day, rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The ascension, I believe, is one of the most undervalued uh, doctrines of the Christian church. By like growing up, and I grew up in church. I mean, we went to church all the time. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You know, I, I, I went to college and studied Bible and religion. I went to seminary, did a Master of Divinity. I went to a university and did a PhD in Biblical Studies. And I have still heard relatively little about the Ascension. It is not a, a doctrine that seems to make a lot of, uh, or get a lot of attention uh, in our circles. So, in the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Luke, Luke must love the Ascension, because Luke mentions it twice. He ends the Gospel of Luke with the Ascension, Jesus ascends, and then he opens the book of Acts, retelling the story of the Ascension. Now, luke not that Luke thought there was two Ascensions, but kind of like, in, in my first story, he ends with the Ascension. And in his second, uh, second episode, you know, second story, he's like, previously, in the Gospel of Luke... You saw these things, and it ends with the ascension. So he tells the story of the ascension again, right? Here's what I think is important about the ascension. Jesus ascends to, to be in the throne room of God, to sit on the throne with God, um, and is seated on the right hand of God the Father. To, be, to ascend to the throne room, to sit with, with the, God the Father, is to, is to be enthroned right we had pronounced that he was the king of kings the lord of lords right he had been pronounced literally on the cross as the king of the jews but if jesus is the king of kings and the lord of lords if literally he's the king of the universe then what do we have to worry about he's the one in whom we trust he's the one who is in charge We opened our service today with a call to worship from Colossians chapter 1, this hymn of Christ that Paul has written to the church in Colossia. It says this, yes, Jesus was of Nazareth. Yes, he was born of of a virgin and conceived by the Spirit and lived and and worked and loved and played and taught and delivered and, and healed and walked on water and fed and all sorts of things. But Jesus in the ascension becomes more than just the particular local phenomenon of the presence of Christ and becomes the cosmic Christ that becomes closer to us than we are to ourselves. That Jesus is in his enthronement, in his ascension. There's an aboriginal depiction of Jesus in Australia That talks of, says ascension, but has Jesus kind of going down in the ascension into the redness of the clay earth. It's a really fascinating depiction of this story. That somehow in Jesus' ascension, he's closer to us than he could have been had he not ascended. Right? So there there was a physical body, right, who died on a cross. It was placed in a tomb. That same physical body placed in a tomb. Uh, was resurrected, it comes to life, and it leaves the tomb. People see him, people touch him, people eat with him, right? But at that point, Jesus is still kind of uh, localized. He's either there or not there. And sometimes he's there or not there in miraculous kind of ways, passing through walls when doors have been shut, kind of appearing and reappearing and such. But still, that, that kind of is a very localized experience of Jesus. Either you were there or you weren't there when he was there. Like there was a time that he appears with, with uh, 12, except Thomas wasn't there. And then there's another time he appears and Thomas was with them. You see all the kind of localized experience that they've had? But the ascension is so much more than that. The ascension kind of takes that localized experience and makes Jesus into the universal Christ. So that no matter where we are, we can say that Jesus is with us. That through the Spirit, the presence of the Christ is literally in us and among us and through us. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Now this is this is a difficult one, I think. Um, how do we understand the coming of Jesus in judgment? So sometimes in church history, it's been played out like this that Jesus is going to kind of bless this group and kind of curse that group. That Jesus is um, kind of picked this group to, to love and to save, and he's um, not picked this group, and so they're in trouble. That kind of uh, divisiveness. A kind of almost kind of capricious, kind of arbitrary kind of selection, I don't think represents the idea of the creed. Jesus comes as judge by very virtue of his grace. Like, when, when Jesus comes, <laughs> his, his grace will judge us. Right? So Jesus loves us all. But if we refuse Jesus... There are consequences for that. Now, there is a passage that says "Their day will come where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus is Lord. But this, this coming, this judgment of the living and the dead, represents a time where history as we know it will find its end. That this big story that we're a part of we'll we'll come to this kind of consummation, this kind of conclusion. And at that point, judgment is cast. And Jesus is that judge. Interestingly enough, even in the Quran, which speaks of Jesus, it speaks of Jesus returning as the judge of the world. Now, I'm not endorsing the Korean or Islam. But I think um, just because we disagree with a belief system or practice doesn't mean everything they say is wrong. And at least they got that part right. Yeah? In Judaism, there's no part of Judaism that anticipates a return of Jesus as judge of the world. Um, Although, again, uh, while I'm not kind of endorsing, trying to get you to convert to Judaism... Uh, because it does believe correctly that there is one God and that one God created the whole world and that one God chose Abraham and through Abraham is blessing the nations, right? So some, some kind of um, cosmic Venn diagram here, right? <clears throat> somewhere, thanks for laughing. Um, somewhere in the middle of that, we, we find this kind of Christian belief in practice, That we believe, right, in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father from where he will come and judge the living and the dead. That's, that's the heart of Christianity. Christianity is not about ideas. Not to say it doesn't have ideas. Don't get me wrong. I'm not anti-idea. I love thinking. Right? It's what I do. I think and talk and write and teach. But at the end of the day, Christianity is not reducible to ideas that you have. It it has to do with a person, a real person. His name is Jesus, and he lived a life, and he's still alive. I mean, he had died, but he came back to life, right? He sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. It's, it's something that's to be lived. It's something that's to be practiced. And we can have ideas about it. And we can talk about it. And we can even debate about it. And we can agree and disagree about all sorts of things. But the creed is about one who suffered. One who lived. One who died. One whom you can know. One who loves you one who was himself baptized and invites us now to be baptized into his name and invites us to his table. We celebrate communion on such a regular basis because Jesus said, as often as you get together, do this in remembrance of me. Come to the table. Real, a real table with real bread, with real juice. Or wine, but for us, juice with really something to drink. Yeah? The most most common everyday elements you can possibly imagine. A little bit of bread and a little bit of something to drink. And he says, in a miraculous kind of mystical way, this is me. Come, be a part of me. Come, be a part of the divine family. The community of love. The eternal love that the Father has for the Son. The eternal love the Son has for the Father. That that eternal spirit that is between them. That is the one who we'll discuss next week. God Almighty, we love you. And Lord, we want to love you more. We pray that your Holy Spirit which is all around us and in us and through us would be poured out in a new and fresh way to give us ears to hear eyes to see hearts that are full of compassion souls that are filled with courage Lord when we become your hands and your feet and your presence the lives of our family and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and our fellow students and our fellow citizens and our fellow human beings around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. You were given, I think, a copy of the creed as you came in today. It's on this tannish piece of paper that says ancient future on one side and has the main the main timeline of scripture creation fall israel jesus church new heaven i'd like to ask for us to read this together as a communal confession uh, before we dismiss today so read with me if you will